It is Reformation Sunday. Some of you are wondering, well, what is that? What, what is that? And uh, I'm hoping by the end of this service, you will not only know that, but you will know someone that you maybe not uh, didn't know when you came. I'd like to bring and introduce someone to you today, someone very special. It's been said that knowing our past equips our present and shapes our future. Would you agree with that? Knowing our past is critical for giving us a, a perspective of a, a, like a balance of who are we, where are we, how are we to live, what mistakes have been made already that we don't have to make again. It equips us to live in the now, and it also shapes our future. It, it gives us wisdom for what choices to make and how to live and shape the direction that we go as it comes to the work that we've been given. So, with that in view, I want to rewind the tape. 501 years, 1517, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, the guy who lived way before Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, the original of whom Luther King was named after. He was uh, a monk uh, who was uh, raised in the Roman Catholic Church, and then he began to, to witness unbelievable corruption and uh, compromise just sweeping through the Roman Catholic Church. And so he reached the boiling point and he said, that's enough. And he took and drafted up 95 protests that he had with the Roman Catholic Church. And on that day, just a few days from now, he took to the castle door at Wittenberg and he pounded those into the door and made his protest, made it public. And that began what is known historically as the Protestant Reformation. It is why, my friends, you are not, this morning, Roman Catholic. It is why you have a love for the Word, and you probably have your own Bible, and you enjoy reading it. it there's so much that God has done through raising up of one man to launch what is known as the Reformation, to reform God's church, to keep her faithful, true to his word. There were many good things that came about. It was a, a challenging reformation. Uh, Rome uh, was not only uh, religiously ingrained, but they also held power politically, and they killed a lot of reformers. A lot of folks who opposed the Catholic Church were put to death. They died brutal deaths. Here are the five solas of the reformation. Sola gratia, you see the word there? Grace. We are saved by grace alone. Sola. Sola. By grace alone. That grace being God's unmerited favor bestowed freely upon us. Not because of anything that we did or that he foresaw that we would do. He saved us by grace alone. And then sola fide. Through faith alone. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Not on the basis of works, right? Again, the Roman Catholic Church puts a lot of emphasis, and still to this day, on performance. You have to do things. And what the Scripture calls us to is you have to place your faith in the one who already accomplished all of the work. It is finished. The work is done in Christ so, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, solus Christus, in Christ alone. He is the only Savior. There is no other Savior. He is the way, the truth, and the life. 
It is not the Pope. It is not folks paying indulgences to spring you from purgatory. How did that ever happen? I don't know. None of that's in the Bible. But they raised a lot of money and built some magnificent churches with those promises. Christ is the only Savior. And all of this then is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, not to the glory of the Pope or to the glory of the church or to the glory of the preacher or to the the glory of the individual. Ephesians repeats this over and over. But only for the glory of God so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship. It is to his glory alone. And how do we find this? What is the basis, the authority for these reforming principles of joy and truth in our lives? It is founded upon the authority and inspiration of Scripture alone. That is the, 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 the standard by which all men are judged. We together today are under this word, the very word of God. That is the, the, the reformation at its heart and soul. And Luther stood for these things and called them out. And by God's grace, uh, history will show the impact of one man standing to protest corruption and awful teaching that was completely unbiblical. I wish I could say that the Roman Catholic Church has drastically departed from uh, some of the things that they were doing back then, but they have not, in fact. And so we continue to pray for those who are there in that uh, denomination. Now, I think maybe there would be some who truly know the Lord and are saved, but the church as an institution is preaching a gospel that is, is wrong. It's, it's not a faithful biblical gospel. So we come to the Word and we find the truth, give clarity to these things, and call us forward today. We are Protestants. We are Protestants. So, I think it's helpful for us to know our history. For some of you who have never had church history or studied these things in history, this is going to be new. And I think good. For others, it's going to be a review because, boy, there's a lot to remember in church history. I laid out eight years ago Uh, a number of different reformers, significant shapers of our faith. And each year on Reformation Sunday, I preach a very unique kind of sermon. It's a biography sermon. I study one man's life that God used significantly, and then I, I build it out from a text that best captures his life story. And we get to know them. And so in 2010, it was Martin Luther, the original protester, And then we studied Augustine of Hippo and John Calvin and John Knox, William Tyndale, George Whitfield, Athanasius, and John Bunyan. All of those are online and they're available. I would highly recommend just driving down the road, listen to some of these sermons and learn church history. Uh, By the time I turned 70 in 2046, my final biography sermon will be to tell the story of my own father's life and how it has shaped me and in turn shaped us together through the legacy of his walk with the Lord. But today, William Carey, a man who lived many, many years ago, 1761 to 1834 AD, known as the father of modern missions. And I want you to know this man better 
by the end of our time together. I want to give you a reason for understanding why he was given that title and why it's so significant for us today. So the sermon title today is Expecting and Attempting. Would you join me in prayer as we dive into the word? Oh, Lord, we are so grateful for your grace to us through Martin Luther, one man who took a stand to to stand against compromise, to stand against what he saw in his day, which was horrific. And Lord, to, to, to shape your church by your sovereign hand, to bring us even today into this place with so many shaping influences in our lives, to have your word laid open before us, to be our joy and our delight, the authority in this room. Lord, that's your word. We thank you for the clarity of the gospel We thank you for the joy that we have in our Savior, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for saving us by grace alone, through faith alone, and for your glory alone in Christ. We pray that we would be a people who delight in these things and hold true, remaining faithful, come what may. Build our resolve even more, Lord, today as we study your word and get to know this man, William Carey. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Expecting and attempting. Uh, The verse that I chose to capture this man's life was a a significant couple of verses that uh, changed William Carey's entire life as he just dwelled upon them and meditated on these verses. They're familiar to many. Matthew 28, 18, 18 through 20. It's the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, that being his disciples, the apostles that he had gathered together and invested so much in over the years. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. This is post-resurrection, right before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Then he says this, you go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What a promise, and what a great commission that is. Do you feel the weight of those words this morning? Do they hit you with a degree of ownership in that mission, as a part of this church, as a part of this this body, this, this lighthouse in the dark, this beacon of hope. These words are for us today. And one of the reasons we see that so clearly is because of how God used these words in William Carey's life. I'm grateful for that. We're going to come back to these verses here in a little bit, but I want to introduce you to this man and we'll spend a little while getting to know his story. I broke it out into some different sections, and you can kind of trace those on the back of your bulletin through the notes. Begin by just saying this is a self-educated sinner saved by grace. A self-educated sinner saved by grace. Uh, A few bullet points on who this man is. 1761, he was born in a small village in England. He was a very curious and studious young man, His life 
at, at, at a young age was dominated by habitual stealing and the consequent lying to, to hide his thievery. And if you think about the, the text that we studied in Sunday school, you realize how significant this is. The Lord detests these things. He brings judgment and discipline for these things. These were the sins that dominated William Carey's life as a young man. He was quite good at stealing, and he grew quite good at lying. However, his conscience was increasingly guilt-ridden as he covered up these sins, and the Lord laid a heavy burden of conviction upon him. He was sovereignly saved by God while working as a blacksmith in his late teens. There was a, a faithful witness there in the, in the shop with him as they worked together who shared the gospel, the true saving gospel of God's goodness through Jesus Christ to take upon himself our sin, to die paying the penalty for our sin, and to rise victorious over death and sin and hell, promising life and forgiveness for all those who trust in his finished work, place their faith in him. William Carey was saved powerfully. He was a self-educated man, a brilliant scholar. He had a knack for language from even early age. He learned by himself with no high school equivalent degree or college degree. He took up Greek. He found a book uh, at a friend's house, and it was the Greek New Testament. And he's like, oh, those are interesting letters. I have to learn that language. Done. He learns Greek. Um, and Kathleen, you know, even people with amazing gifts for language like you, lots of work there still, right? Tremendous labor and concentration and work. Even when you have a knack for language like Kathleen, it's hard work. He taught himself Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. He longed to be a gardener. He, he had a, uh, an uncle who he admired a lot, who was a professional gardener. And in this day, that was a big deal and a kind of a botanist kind of thing. And, and William was just drawn to plants and insects and all of the things. And, but he had this thing where if he was out in the sun for like 30 minutes or so, he would break out into the most painful rash you could ever imagine. So he had to stay indoors. And the Lord allowed that he would steer him toward books over botany at this point, and it proved to, to be very helpful later in his life. He became a cobbler. Now, a cobbler is not a shoe maker. A cobbler is one who repairs shoes that have been made and worn out. And it's important for us to know this. We're not in England now. Uh, but in this day, a cobbler was about as low as you get. If you're a shoemaker, you can at least say, well, at least I'm not a cobbler. But William Carey owned it fully. One time, someone asked him as an insult, aren't you a shoemaker? And he said, no, sir, I'm a cobbler. And he wanted uh, to own that part of his story. He worked hard and labored over the repairing of these shoes for very little profit. Uh, when he was around 20, he married Dorothy, uh, who turned uh, out to be a very difficult wife. Um, we'll say more about that later. Uh, she just did not share his love for the Lord. She did not share a, a heart for the lost as the Lord grew that in William Carey. And things got quite difficult uh, for him as it relates to his marriage. 
He was baptized um, not long after that by a Baptist pastor named Dr. John Ryland in 1783. Okay, so he's just in his early 20s. And uh, that's a significant thing because at this time you're still dealing with some pretty big reforming happening. The echo of Martin Luther and the Reformation is reaching certainly and you have these, these independent churches coming up and Baptist churches are hitting and breaking onto the scene. And so to be baptized by this man was a big deal. And it uh, didn't really please his dad very much at that point, but he went ahead and was baptized. Now, the cobbler's heart. I want you to know not just his biography, but his heart. It's so important to see this. As William Carey continued to grow, he read a book that just uniquely shaped him. You wouldn't expect it. It was the, the Captain Cook's Voyages Around the World. And Captain Cook was quite a guy. He went on multiple voyages, I think three in total, all around the world, dropping in all kinds of different places. And then he chronicled his, his uh, exploits and even had some pictures drawn of native lands and all kinds of different things that he had experienced. And what happened for William Carey as he read this book is he was made aware of the diversity of people groups around the world and how much he had grown up in a bubble and little how, how little he had actually seen of God's entire earth and the people groups around the earth. And the Lord began to stir in his heart a love for the lost, for the nations. He uh, continued learning and this longing grew. In fact, uh, his cobbler's shop became known as uh, the Cobbler's College because he was so obsessed with what he was learning that as people came to have their shoes repaired, they would sit and wait and he would teach them of all of these things, different facts about the nations, different truths from the word as he had been studying. And increasingly, he became a, a, a preacher and a teacher of the word. And more and more people were beginning to notice this man who had just a heart for the nations. William Carey said it this way, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. Wow, that hits home, doesn't it? In our day, oh, how easy it is to live our lives and succeed at things that in light of eternity are meaningless. They just don't matter. Lord, help us live lives with an eternal perspective to pour ourselves into things that are significant, things that matter. Carey continued with his gift for the languages. He already knew the, the main three. He added many more languages to that, I guess just for fun, because they were there. He picked up multiple different languages. And by the time that he hit the mission field in just a few years, uh, I think it was something like seven to ten different languages he already had under his belt, in addition to those that he would work hard to learn uh, as he headed to the mission field. This is... Uh, Fred Barlow, he says this of Carey, the more he read and studied, the more convinced he was uh, the peoples of the world need Christ. You see the connection? It wasn't just curiosity about adventure. It was about people who were unsaved and lost and headed for hell. They needed Jesus. He read, he made notes, he made a great leather globe of the world 
And uh, one day, in the quietness of his cobbler's shop, Carrie heard the call. If it be the duty of all men, Carrie felt, to believe the gospel, then it be the duty of those who are entrusted with the gospel to endeavor to make it known among all nations. Do you see Matthew 28 operating in his heart? Even in the very call to the mission field, Matthew 28 is uh, at the core of it. Carrie sobbed out, Here I am, send me. Send me. The echo of the Scripture. Now, overwhelming opposition, it's important to notice this because for many, it would have been too much. Many would have said, you know what, there's just no way. Uh, There's too many things, too many barriers, too many people who are looking down at this longing. But Carrie, by God's grace, was determined. I'll give you three categories of this. I'm sure there were others, but here's three. Uh, Deep-rooted prejudice. At this time, there was a, a just ingrained in this English society a, a, a kind of a, a lofty pride. And it operated with uh, labels, just like prejudice and, and racism always does. But it was ugly. And it was in the church. Those who were of the nations were referred to as the heathen. The heathen. The unsophisticated. Those not enlightened, those unlearned men, they would look down upon them and they would treat them with disdain. In fact, it wasn't that they were untouchable. It's at this time, expansionism in in England was on the rise. They were going all over the place. Why? To make money. They would take resources from India through the East India Trading Company and they would bring them back to England. But the people were simply pawns to be used. In large part, that was the view even within the church. The heathen. Carrie's mind was much engaged in the prejudices of his day. Convinced of the common and equal rights of all people, Carrie yearned to share with all his rich inheritance in Christ. He saw them as people made in the image of God. People who have souls, who will forever experience the wrath of God if they die in their sins without Jesus as Savior. When others saw heathens, Carrie's heart reached out for lost people in need of Jesus. The second opposition that Carrie faced was what I'm calling missiological disdain basically a a justification for inaction it was an excuse to not go to the heathen here's how it would would operate there was this thing like what do you mean great commission matthew 28 18 through 20 that's not for us that was for the apostles jesus commanded them not us in fact they would point to a, a verse out of colossians 1 and say in fact that when Paul describes it as being uh, preached to the, the end of the world, that, that they would say it's already been done. The Great Commission is already finished. Why, why do we need to do anything? They would even add the reason those people are who they are is because they rejected the Lord and they're, they're receiving their due punishment. And they would wash their hands and walk away. 
It was a great excuse to try to pacify what I would see as conviction of the Spirit as they would read plain verses. The push of the early church was just excused away as, yeah, I already did that. We're good. Wow. Reminder for us here, uh, the Great Commission is not simply about locations. We need to see that. It's about people. It's about people. Just because you go to Peru and you penetrate the jungles once doesn't mean you check it off the list. It's not how the, the Great Commission works because it's people. And guess what? People are born every day. So penetrating the nations, reaching the lost, is not a one-time checklist. It's an ongoing event. It is to the nations, to the peoples, in all times until he returns. It's keep going. Uh, it would be the equivalent of, uh, in a military strategy, take and hold. It's a call to the nations until he returns. This is the peace that carries self. This is the part that he was just appalled that was being ignored. But the opposition was strong. The third category of opposition that he faced was what I'm calling ingrained hyper-Calvinism. Ingrained hyper-Calvinism. Here's what it sounds like, okay? It's, this, is, this is what it sounds like. Well, if God is sovereign, why bother evangelizing? In this area, at least in this area that, uh, that Carrie was, was growing up, this was settled in. And there were people who rightly saw the sovereignty of God and then wrongly concluded, why bother pray? Why bother evangelize? So here's what we can't do with this. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. To the first line, yes, he is sovereign. He is sovereign in salvation. Carey delighted in the doctrines of grace, the same doctrines that John Calvin, for some reason his name got attached to it, I don't know why, he's just reading the same Bible. You put anybody's name on it. If they're biblical, that's what it is. It's the doctrines of God. They're glorious and true. The, the doctrines of, of, of the truth of God's word. But the hyper part gets inserted when you wrongly conclude, eh, let's kick back. God, God can do it. He doesn't need us. He, he, why pray? Why evangelize? Why speak? Where in the Bible do you see that? I mean, it's, it's just not there. It is a logical fallacy. And it is a delight to the enemy to take glorious doctrines and then twist them up with horrible conclusions. This was awful and on display. Let me give you a little exchange uh, that Carey had. Before the end of 1786, Mr. Carey, accompanied by another minister of the same age and standing with himself, went to a minister's meeting at Northampton uh, toward the close of the evening when the pulpit services were ended and the company engaged in conversation. Dr. Ryland, Mr. Ryland, his pastor who baptized him, really a mentor for Carey, entered into the room and with his accustomed freedom, demanded that the two junior ministers, Mr. Carey and his friend, should each propose a question for a general discussion. Mr. Carey pleaded several excuses, but a question was demanded. At length, he then submitted whether the command given to the apostles to teach all nations was not obligatory on all succeeding ministers 
to the end of the world, seeing that the accompanying promise was of equal extent. You see what he's saying here? Let me show you what this means. This is, this is why the Great Commission just wound up Carrie from the inside. He said, if Jesus promised that I will be with you always to the end of the age, the you can't be limited because all the apostles would die. You see, what? To, to the end of the age, I will be with you. Jesus is promising that the Spirit will come, the Spirit of Christ, the great comforter, the one who would uh, be given at Pentecost. And in that presence of the Spirit, the Trinitarian presence of Christ is with them as they go. He is the power in their, in their work. Such that it must be concluded, the Great Commission was not simply given to the apostles. It was given to the church. And the apostles laid the foundation for it and set it out on the example. And massive work was done. And it then continued. And it continues today. This is what Kerry is saying. He makes this case at length in this general discussion. Now, how are they going to respond? Listen to the response. It's the first time uh, that Kerry had ventured to lay the burden of his heart in public, though he had frequently urged the subject in private. As soon as Dr. Ryland uh, could command sufficient composure, he exclaimed, young man, sit down. When God is pleased to convert the heathen world, he will do it without your help or mine. What a stinging rebuke that would have landed in the heart of Carrie from a mentor, a baptizing pastor. For many, it would have been too much. Either jaded, cynical, bitter, and walk away, or passive, silent, get in line, and join with all of the rest who have wrongly concluded God is going to do whatever He's going to do, but we are not called to obey His commands. Carrie rejected both by God's grace. He went to work. The next section is the ends and the means. Carrie went to work, and he was convinced that this, in fact, was a commission for all of us that this commission was still upon the church, that it was our work to be done. And so he wrote a book, and this is the title of the book. I loved titles back then. They were, they were like a thesis statement in the very title. An inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. Means. The obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of who? The nations. And he used the word heathens just to add a little punch. Carrie hmm. began to teach, combating this opposition, especially with this hyper-Calvinism. Here's what he said. The God who ordained the ends has equally ordained the means to achieve them. Just picture the destination of your vacation, okay? 
You plug it into your GPS. It says, that's where you're going. Good. God ordains that end. And he equally ordains every single turn on the route to get you there. It's as ordained. Every prayer prayed is as ordained by God as the effect of that prayer. When God takes it and makes it effective to bring about his end. Every word preached, spoken, shared, every life lived to tout the gospel before the lost is part of the means ordained by God to accomplish the end of salvation in those that he chooses. Wow. It has to be this way. Otherwise, God would simply be up there wringing his fists and wondering if the things that he ordained will actually come to pass. He is a God not only sovereign over the outcome. He is a God sovereign in every level of the journey. This is what Carrie began to speak and to teach and to preach, and it began to take hold. People began to be convicted by this. Even at a point along the way, Dr. Ryland was ashamed of the words he had spoken as the Spirit of God came heavy on his heart. And he embraced this. What an awesome thing to see. Careful exposition laid out and people who have just dogmatic resistance sit down. All of a sudden, hearts melt. And a heart for the lost began to grow. Paul writes this in the middle of Romans 9 through 11, which is one of the most amazing displays of God's sovereignty and salvation. Uh, look, look at what he says right in the middle of this. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This should be clear. That's a promise. That is a promise that is in effect today in this room. Oh, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they never have heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Do you see how the means are functioning in the sovereignly appointed ends? Some from every nation, tribe, and tongue will sing praise to their Savior forever. How will that happen? It will happen as God mobilizes his people to be the mouthpiece of that message to the ends of the earth. God could save everyone he wants like that. He doesn't need us, but he has so ordained his plan of salvation to move through us. Us. Who are we? His deathless sermon is the most popular sermon he ever preached. Uh, the undying sermon. The sermon that just wouldn't stop. It was the most simple sermon you could ever imagine. He preached out of a verse out of Isaiah. And this, these are his two main points. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. You see the, the ends? Expect great things. God is sovereign. That's his point. Yes, God is sovereign. He is He's going to accomplish incredible things. And he's going to use us in the process. And so we should, with this great confidence, attempt great things for God. 
You see the function of prayer in this. You see the, the function of confidence in His sovereign work. And you see the function of going and loving and speaking and sending. Now, a persevering ministry, there are few missionaries that would share the kind of misery that William Carey experienced. I just, I mean, couldn't believe it. In fact, by the end of these slides, you're going to wonder, did anything good happen? And just hang with me, because yes, we'll get there. But these are some of the things that he faced. A Baptist missionary society was formed, the, the first one, it was actually the first Baptist missionary society, literally. Twelve pastors caught the vision from Carey. They gathered around and they said, William Carey, we're in. We're in. We will support. We're going to form this society. And they took up a collection. <laughs> the equivalent of $23 came in. These guys were poor. They were just local Area pastors, small town guys, but they said, we are in. We're committed to this. Listen to how Andrew Fuller, a significant missionary himself, describes this moment as he's there with these men. Our undertaking in India really appeared at its beginning to me somewhat like a few men who were deliberately about the importance of penetrating a deep mine which had never been before explored. We had no one to guide us, and whilst we were thus deliberating, Carrie, as it were, said, well, I'll go down if you will hold the rope. I'll go down if you will hold the rope. But before he had descended, he, as it seemed to me, took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect. Whilst we lived, we should never let go of the rope. You remember four years ago when Kathleen was commissioned from this church to go to Bangladesh in a, a pretty frontier experience. We didn't know what to expect. We didn't know all of the challenges that would lie before her. But she said, I will go. I will go if you hold the rope. You remember that? You, you were here? That, that was part of that commissioning service was hold the rope. Good shepherd, hold that rope. She's going on our behalf to represent Good Shepherd in a very frontier, frontline ministry where there is a thousand challenges every day. And it's our job to hold the rope. You see, you need people who will go, courageous people who are willing to say, I will count the cost and go. But you also need a network of people who say, we will stay and hold the rope for you to send you on your way, to supply you as you need. Carrie said, I'll go. Those men said, we will hold the rope. In 1793, Carrie left for India. He had no contacts, no guide, and no clue of what to expect. His wife was preg pregnant at the time. She said, no, I'm not going. And uh, he pleaded with her to go. She stayed behind. He took some of their kids, and they <laughs> got on a boat, uh, it was kind of comical. Uh, Kerry was not a, a, a real good-looking guy, as it were. He was, he was, he was struggling on, on, in that area, and so he would wear this wig, which was common back in the day. And, and people were constantly saying how horrible his wig was when he was preaching. So on the boat to India, he took that wig and he chucked it in the ocean. 
said, forget the wig, man, it's hot, and uh, we're, we're going for it. Think of the, the, the young man who couldn't be in the sun, now going to, as Kathleen can attest, one of the hottest and most humid places on earth, and God overcame that issue with the rash. He was not haunted by that the rest of his ministry over there. He was in the sun for long periods of time. He had to arrive under cover of darkness because what he was doing was illegal. Uh, England had declared that to protect trade, the sending of missionaries was not to happen. So he went in without the approval of his home country, and uh, he went in basically kind of dodging those who were in control so that he wouldn't ruffle feathers and get sent home. Kerry battled extreme poverty. I'm, I'm just unbelievable poverty uh, the, the local people felt so bad for him some not even really knowing who he was just watching him try to live they were bringing him food day by day to keep him alive he had to work many jobs in fact he he, he worked jobs his entire missionary uh, experience um, he saw paul in his tent making work and he was just convinced that's what he should do as well. He took a lot of flack for it from the missionary societies. They wanted him to stop working, but it turned out to be a bridge into uh, the relationships and a very effective way over the long haul for Kerry. Seven years of what seemed to be fruitless work. Seven years, think of this. You are there to share the gospel with the lost, and you labor every day for seven years and nothing, no change. In fact, he would stand and preach, and by the end of his sermon, everyone was gone. No one was listening. The caste system of India, which continues to this day, uh, remember Pastor Moses who was here, Moses Chatla? I had a long talk with him about this. He said it's a very, very difficult scenario, even to this day, but to, to convert and become a Christian is basically to be an outcast. You lose all your rights, all your privileges. And it was tremendous pressure that held back so many from truly embracing Christ as Lord and Savior. The first convert finally came. His name was Krishna Paul. He became an evangelist. He was opposed at his baptism and he went through with it anyway. William Carey said this, if... Like David, I am only to gather materials and another to build the house. My joy shall not be less. What perspective is that? If all God is pleased to do through my labor is gather the supplies so that another can build the house, I'm okay with that. That's a heart focused on the right things. Confident in the sovereign work of God. Kerry and his large family repeatedly fought malaria, cholera, dysentery. Think of medications, the lack thereof. Very difficult. After just a few years, Kerry's young son, Peter, died. Dysentery. Three months later, his wife, Dorothy, lost her mind. She, she went crazy. Uh, she couldn't handle it. She, she joined him uh, after they, she had the, the baby and came over. And it was so much that strained so much, she just went crazy. She started spreading lies about Carrie and tried to kill him multiple times. 
Everyone around Carrie said, you have to put her in institution, if not for your sake, for your kid's sake. And he refused to do it and continued to care for her until she died 12 years later. The vow, the vow. Now, we look at that and some would say in our day, why did he stay? His wife has gone insane. His children are dying. What are you doing, William Carey? Come home, come home. In this day, those kinds of conversations just didn't happen. And right or wrong, I don't know. I, it's difficult to know. I would tend to think that there's a certain priority there on the home that qualifies outward for ministry. However, he saw the situation better than anyone and he decided he would persevere and stay through it all. Others joined Carrie's work. One man actually died just upon arriving. He was so sick, he died. But uh, a preacher came and a printer came, a guy who would print. They were able to get a hold of a printing press they began to really click. When those three men partnered up, uh, the Sarampore Trio, I think is what they call them, uh, they were an incredible combination of gifts. Carrie with his language skills, um, another man with his preaching skills, and then the publication work. In 1812, there was a fire, and years of Carrie's translation work was lost, burned in, in the flames. Can you imagine that, Kathleen? Just, oh, your heart and soul laboring hours upon hours, and then a fire just consumes it all. Who is sovereign over the fire? God. God is. Carrie knew this, so he plodded on. He persevered, and another printing press was secured, and within a year they had more than doubled their work by God's grace. Hmm. Carrie and his team trusted God for each step of the way. William Carey spent a total of 41 continuous years in India as a missionary. He never returned to England, and he died serving in India at the age of 73. Like I said, that's pretty bleak, isn't it? That's heavy. Can you imagine going through that? That was his life. That was the will of God for William Carey lived out day by day. Now, let's consider his legacy. What did God accomplish through this man? Carrie translated the Bible into six different languages and portions of the Bible into 29 more. The Bengali Bible, I was talking to Kathleen about this, today is still being used, right? The William Carey Bible in Bengali is still being used. His labor echoes every day still in Bangladesh and areas where the Bengali people are. In 30 years, Carey and his team printed over 212,000 items, Bibles, Gospels, evangelistic tracts, in 40 different languages. Can you even begin to conceive of the different dialects and the work of, of tuning these things to bring the good news of, of God and the Gospel to all of these unreached people groups? He was a, a frontier pioneer in this. He compiled multiple authoritative dictionaries, which are still regarded to this day uh, over there. Carey established Serampore College, which still functions to this day. He planted many churches, started over a hundred schools, and encouraged young women to attend. 
That's a big cultural shift. He was at the front end of that. Why? Because women are made in the image of God. And they should be educated as well. He founded the Horticultural Society of India. This is cool. I didn't realize that his love for plants and insects would find an, an expression in India. And he would be able to become one of the most renowned botanists and, and uh, horticulturists of India, such that even today he is authoritative in many of these things. He printed weekly publications in the first Indian newspaper. Uh, some of those weekly publications are still in print today. He helped ban the burning of widows, known as sati, in 1829, just near the end of his life. This was a, a cultural, just horrific practice that had been taking place, and abuses abounded, and he drew attention to it. Much like William Wilberforce and the slave trade during this time, um, William Carey saw as his role one of the ways to bring social change was to stand for the sanctity of life, and these widows who were literally burning alive, he tried to end that and was successful before he died. He also established 19 mission outposts around India as he labored with his partners in ministry. Now, do you hear how one man heeding the call, gathering around support to hold the rope, and going to a place that others would disregard? That impact echoes today. His life is still impacting people today. But the greatest impact of William Carey, the, the greatest effect of this man's life is not limited to the borders of India. What happened is that William's message, his deathless sermon, began to echo in hearts all around the world. And tens of thousands of people were raised up by God to lay their lives down and go with the gospel to the lost. To see them as people who were in need of a Savior, and to say, I'll go, send me. S. Pierce Carey writes this, The light which Carey had kindled spread from hill to hill like beacon fires, till every Christian church in turn recognized the signal and responded to the call. The modern missions movement was lit ablaze by God's sovereign plan at work in William Carey. That's incredible. Incredible. There would be missionaries to this day taking the field because of this man's willingness to go all those years ago. Hmm. So, how is it helping us this morning to learn from this man? How can what has happened in the past give us a sense of purpose in the present? and shape our future as a church here? How can we respond to this? One would be to have compassion for the nations. When you read Matthew 28, 18 through 20, you read a commission that is yours. It's yours. It's in effect right here today. It's one of the reasons why next week, we are going to commission once again Kathleen to go back to Bangladesh. And part of that commissioning is a, a reaffirmation. Yes, Kathleen, we will hold the rope. We will hold the rope 
with tenacious perseverance like Carrie. And as you go, you know you're not alone. She goes for us. We go with her. Because lost people need Jesus. Compassion. Carrie was often moved, stirred so deeply when speaking about these things to others that he would just break down in tears about people who were lost and dying without Jesus. That should be our heart. That, that weight of lost people dying apart from Christ and going to hell for eternity should weigh on us a heart of compassion for the nations. To belong to Jesus is to embrace the nations with Him. Carrie said. That's what it means to belong to Jesus. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? The nations. The nations. Number two, we should, like Carrie, share a similar confidence in the sovereignty of God. Carrie delighted in the doctrines of grace. He was so comforted when he would minister and teach and preach that he didn't have to try to accomplish what no human being could, the changing of a heart. He knew that only God can do this. And so he spoke boldly and persevered faithfully with this as the confidence of his ministry. God uses normal people to accomplish supernatural things. The God who ordained the ends has equally ordained the means to achieve them. Number three, courage to participate. Not everybody should go. Let's be clear. Your pastor would never survive in Bangladesh. Praise the Lord that Kathleen has God's grace upon her to pull that off. I, I am more convinced than ever that God has a plan to raise up people, to gift them uniquely. Good night. How many of us could do what Kathleen pulls off week after week? Incredible gifts of God given for His glory and the furtherance of His kingdom. And we, the senders, get to participate in that. Not everybody should go. Not everybody can go. But all are called to have courage to participate. That said, some people need to go. Maybe in this room, even young people, God may be planting a, 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 a vision, a longing, much like William Carey had. Many missionaries, when you talk to them, they'll say this. From the time I can earliest remember, when I was just a kid, I always wanted to be a missionary. I want to take Jesus to the ends of the earth. Who, who is that? That's God. So be sensitive. Be listening to the prompting of God in your heart. It could be, maybe, even within this room, he's raising up another William Carey. Parents, it might be one of your kids. Courage to participate. There is a place on the front line that only you can fill. I love that. I love that. We're members of one body. We're members of we're different gifts, 
different personalities, different backgrounds, different areas of expertise, and yet we're one. We're one. And there's a place that God intends for you to, to stand in at the front line. Are you there? Are, are you in your place? Have you found that place? And you're like, okay, I got the rope. Here we are. Let's do this. What a joy to be together in this. This is not a lone ranger type of thing. This is a, a church family type of thing. So, Good Shepherd Community Church, expect great things from God and let's attempt great things for God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this great commission that you have given us. We are grateful for your love for lost people. We are members of the nations. We have so much. We have been blessed and blessed and blessed by you. Father, we pray that we would not be good at things that don't matter, but that we would persevere in the things that do and be used by you faithfully to whatever end you have ordained, Lord, use us to accomplish that. In your sovereign plan, use us. Use our faithful prayers day in and day out to support and strengthen our missionaries both here locally and around the world. Lord, use that which you have given us to do with our hands to bring in your blessing that we might leverage it to the ends of the earth. Father, we thank you for the gifts and the talents, the different uh, aspects of, of, of your glory on display in this church family. I thank you for the way you raise people up to, to use them in special ways. I'm excited, Lord, as next week we send Kathleen back to Bangladesh and, 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 and hold the rope for her once again as she goes. I thank you for her filled up support for answered prayers there. Oh Lord, we pray that you would continue that work in all of our missionaries, our partnerships around the world. And Father, give us a heart for the lost, both in our backyard and to the ends of the earth. Accomplish your good will, O oh God, and use us in whatever way you choose. Here we are. Send us. In Jesus' name, amen.